If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 19. And hear now the word of the Lord that is sufficient, authoritative, and inerrant. 1 Kings, chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he rose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise, and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for your journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire... The sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. 
Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him. And he was with the twelfth. Elisha passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask, O Lord, that you would use your word with power this morning, that by your Holy Spirit you would convict us of sin, that you would sharpen our minds and focus them upon the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a film that some of you may be familiar with. It's a a family film in which there's a character that throughout a series of about five minutes, events keep happening, and he shakes his head and he says, inconceivable. And it happens again and again. And after about ten times, someone turns to him and says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. Because, of course, it isn't inconceivable because these things are happening. The point is is that this man has such a view of the way things should be that he can't understand when things change. I think that's true for us as well. It's true with our text this morning in two respects. I think it's true for Elijah, but I think it's also true as we approach the text. And so what I'm going to ask you to do is to set aside the thoughts that you may have about this very famous passage. My guess is nearly all of you know it, could tell the story to your average grade school child of what happened to Elijah on the mountain after Mount Carmel. But I would like you to see in this text the working of the Lord, not necessarily an affinity that you might have or a perceived affinity with Elijah. What do I mean by that? Well, We'll get to the text in just a moment. The three things that I would like us to see from this text are first, the limitations of God. Merely saying that causes you to perk up your head. But that's in quotes. But there is a sense in which God places his own limits upon himself. But lest we be too concerned, we then see the power of God. God shows us limitations that we might not expect. And then he shows us his power, the power of God. And then finally, we're introduced to a new character and we see the call of God. So the limitations of God, the power of God, and the call of God. Well, what do we mean by the limitations of God? The first thing that we need to realize is is that God's nature and God's plan are not as we would have them to be. You see, God is all-powerful, but that doesn't mean that he's all-powerful in the way we would like it to be. He has his own purposes. He has his own design. 
And the first thing that Elijah learns, and we should learn along with him, is that proof is not faith. Proof is not faith. Now, think about the context of the story that we're about to enter into here. Elijah is coming fresh off a fabulous victory on Mount Carmel. There's no other way to describe it, is there? The prophets of Baal fail spectacularly. And then the Lord consumes not only the offering, not only the wood, but the stones and the very dust around the altar with fire. And the people are in awe. And Elijah proceeds to order the judicial execution of 450 prophets of Baal. This is not a revenge. This is Elijah carrying out the orders of Deuteronomy that the prophet is supposed to have 100% success rate. And if he doesn't, he is to be put to death. And so he puts to death the prophets of Baal. It's spectacular. All of Israel that's gathered there acknowledges that the Lord is God. It's the kind of scene that makes you want to pump your fist in the air and to say, yes, this is how the Lord achieves victory. Even Ahab is impressed, isn't he? He talks to Elijah and he actually does what Elijah tells him to do. He goes from the Elijah hunt team to, yes, sir, Mr. Elijah, sir, I'll go there if you tell me to. And he goes home and he sees his wife. And we would expect if this were the end of a novel or of a movie, the credits to start to roll, there to be a happy scene. God is back in Israel. Everyone repents and life is good. The only problem is, is that chapter 18 turns into chapter 19. And Ahab comes home, and you can almost imagine, in my sanctified imagination, Ahab is not a particularly intelligent man. He didn't exactly get into power because he was skilled. And he comes home and he says, you'll never guess what happened, honey. The prophets of Baal, they tried to call fire and they couldn't. And the Lord did and everything got burned up right in front of us. She stares at him. No, really. Like, the offering, the wood, the stones. No, like, the dust, too. Everything. You'll never believe it. So, what does that mean? How's that supposed to affect me, Ahab? What? You mean this spectacular display of the power of God doesn't move you? Not at all. Actually, Jezebel says it moves me in the opposite direction. I'm going to put together a hit team and go and get that guy that's set up for my prophets to fail. Her reaction is, nothing is going to change. We expect everything to change, but she says, no, nothing is going to change at all. Now, you probably haven't been a prophet in ancient Israel, or a king of Israel. But my guess is you've experienced some of this in your own life. You hear or you think about a spectacular argument to prove the existence of God. And you try it out on your neighbors, and not just any neighbor, maybe even the neighbor that's showing signs of spiritual awakening. And it falls flat on the carpet and doesn't even bounce. 
you think, that's weird. And you try and give all the heartfelt plea for personal evangelism. And you say, you don't know what Jesus has done for me. Let me describe then what Jesus has done for me. If you don't like arguments, let me describe my experience. And that falls flat on the carpet. And then you think, well, wait a minute. Maybe if I start to describe all the miraculous things that have happened. I heard that this person got cured from heart disease. And I heard this person had a child that they weren't able to have and they were praying for for years and all these marvelous things that God has done. And again, it falls flat on the carpet. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you've had that experience out in the world at large. Maybe your thoughts, like many of us, were right after 9-11 that God was going to use this for a time of great spiritual awakening in America. That America was finally going to wake up to the fact that it needed to serve the Lord. And then about nine months later, you realized that people pretty much, except for those who had been directly affected, had forgotten about it. Now, it's almost as if it was a non-event. People get criticized for bringing it up. It falls flat. Perhaps you've had this experience at church where you expected a church to grow, where you expected marvelous things to happen, and it just falls flat. If so, then you can identify not only with Elijah, but with the people of God throughout the ages. Because you see, simply proving things, simply showing evidence does not put faith in a man or a woman's or a child's heart. Only God can do that. You see, there is a limitation on this word. This word is absolutely powerless without the power of God behind it to change hearts. Why? Because God has decreed that it be so. He has decreed that you must believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, to have your life, your family, your church affected by God's Word. And you see, Jezebel wasn't affected. We see a perfect example there. You see, we're tricked by Ahab because we can also know we have the experience of people who experience temporary faith. They're interested about spiritual things. They may even make a profession of faith, and then they fall off the table, never to be found from again. But you see, Jezebel puts it in clear letters that there are those simply that choose to reject the word of God because God has decreed it to be so. One of the limitations on God then is that proof is not faith. But the second limitation from our perspective is that God's plan is not our success. You see, God's plan is not always what we think would be the most successful thing for God to do. We would say, come on, God, get with the program. All you got to do is turn Jezebel here, and it's good days back again in Israel. But you see, God has a plan that is beyond what we can see. And sometimes the result is not what we expect. That's certainly the case for Elijah. He certainly wasn't expecting a nonplussed, well, who cares, attitude from Jezebel. He certainly wasn't expecting it from Israel itself because Jezebel 
doesn't fear anything that Israel might do. They back down very quickly from killing the prophets of Baal. As a matter of fact, as we'll see several chapters from now, they become veritable yes-men for Jezebel. They'll do whatever she wants. You need me to bear false witness against an honest man? Sure, I'll go ahead and do it. And so Elijah looks around and he says, this isn't what I expected. And Elijah has to learn the lesson that we need, which is that we follow the Lord. He does not serve us. God is not our big secret weapon against society. He is not the atom bomb of philosophy. He is not something that we trot out in order to win arguments or to win over neighborhoods or to see America shining. God is the one who sets the agenda. God is the one who has the plan, and we follow. And Elijah has to learn that. That he needs to follow the plan that God has. And you see, Elijah is disturbed. Now, I'm going to do something that I hardly ever do, but I'm going to give you a reason for it. And that's to say that I think, at this point, in verse 3, Your Bible is mistranslated. And by that I mean every version of your Bible. Except for anyone that has a Hebrew Bible. Because you see, the word there, afraid, is actually only appears in some Hebrew manuscripts. It appears in the Greek translation. And if we think about it, it makes an awful lot of sense. If someone sends you a note that says, the hit team is coming after you, you don't throw a party. You're afraid. And if you run away, it's because you're afraid. But the interesting thing is, is that this Hebrew word for afraid in this form looks almost exactly like the word for saw, as in see with your eyes. And actually, that's what appears in the Hebrew manuscript, saw. So why would I make a big deal about this? Am I trying to Make you lose faith in your scriptures? No, because I don't think it takes us that far afield anyway to say afraid, but I think it misses a point here. And that is that Elijah is on the run not because he's a neurotic scaredy cat. He's on the run because he looks and he sees nothing is going to change. This is it. He's done what he can do. And Jezebel has made it very clear that there will be no new administration in Samaria. So what do you do if you're Elijah? Well, you run away. And you run away because the last thing that you want is the Sumerian Times to post a headline, Queen Jezebel kills supposed prophet of God. That's the last thing you want. You don't want her to get a victory. And so you leave and you ask the Lord to take your life from you. You say, Lord, I've done all I can. I can't do anymore. And so he wants to go away and die, but he doesn't want to die and give Jezebel credit. He's running away not because he's afraid, but because he sees the reality of the world around him. And if we think about it that way, the rest of this story makes a bit more sense. If you were afraid and want to die, why would you go on a 40-day journey? That doesn't make much sense especially when there's people there more than willing to kill you. But you see, what he does is he goes off on this journey and he makes a stopping point. He leaves his servant. 
He's going to a place. He's going to see God and His power. So the limitations on God, so to speak, are that proof is not faith, that God must give faith, and that also that God's plan is not bound by our vision of success. But that doesn't mean that God is weak or truly limited, because now we see God's real power. We see power in the fact, first, that He provides. Elijah goes off on this trip, and he lays down and he says... I'm no better than my father's. I couldn't change things. I'm just going to lay here and die. Does that remind you of anyone recently? I'm just going to give up and die. Wasn't there a widow just a little bit ago that said the same thing? And what happened to her? God brought someone into her life and said, No, I can provide. And ironically, that was Elijah. He's kind of forgotten that message. And so God sends someone to remind him of that, that he is the provider. He sends an angel. And even if you look at here, the language is even reminiscent of this widow. What what shows up but a cake baked on coals? And even though it's water, it's a jug or a jar, same word, of water. The irony wouldn't be lost here on Elijah. God is providing for him the same way that he provided for this widow. And so Elijah eats and drinks, and then he lays down again. But you see, God is not finished with Elijah. He has a purpose and a plan for him. There's a reason why Elijah is on the move. And so God sends the angel of the Lord a second time. And he says, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. You see, this travel, this 40-day travel that he is about to take is at God's insistence. God has a plan here. The angel of the Lord, who is very likely the pre-existent Lord Jesus Christ, the angel of the Lord, God's messenger, not just any angel, says, you have to take a long journey. You can't just sit under this tree and die. And so he says, you must get sustenance And you have to go where you're going. Well, where is Elijah going? He's going to a place called Horeb. Now, if you don't have a Bible atlas or aren't incredibly familiar with the book of Exodus, you may say, well, I don't know what Horeb is. But if I call Horeb by its other name, Sinai, there's immediately a name, stories that come to your mind. And that is how the scripture wants it to be. It wants to link in your mind Elijah with whom? Moses. It'll do that in another place in the scriptures, won't it? On the Mount of Transfiguration. Who's there with our Lord Jesus but Elijah and Moses? Have you ever wondered why it's Elijah and Moses? Well, it's because Moses is the covenant maker, so to speak, with Israel. He supervises the making of the covenant. And Elijah supervises the accusation that the covenant has been broken. You see, this is not just about Elijah being afraid. And if you're afraid, you should be like Elijah and listen to God and he'll bring you food and water. This is about God saying, I am redeeming a people. I have a plan for the whole universe. 
And so he takes Elijah to Mount Horeb. And the scene is very reminiscent of one in Moses, in which Moses is involved. He goes and he is put into a cave. Now, again, you might think, well, there's nothing similar about that. But if I were to describe a cave on a mountain descriptively and call it a cleft in a rock, it might sound different to you. It might sound like exactly where God put Moses when he did what? Passed by, verse 11. And when he passed by and Moses saw the backside, so to speak, of God's glory. And Moses had to be veiled, just like Elijah had to be veiled in verse 14, where he takes, excuse me, verse 13, he takes his cloak and wraps it around his face. This whole story is reminiscent of the story of Moses, because God has a purpose. He is providing not only food, not only his word, in verse 11, but he's providing a purpose to Elijah. The importance of his covenant. He is inviting Elijah to state the case against Israel. What do I mean by that? The power of God is found, secondly, in his convicting of sin. Elijah makes this statement after God asks, what are you doing here? He says, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. And they've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets. And I'm the only one left alive. And when we first read that text, we think this is a pity party. Elijah, you just had this victory. And don't you know Obadiah hid a hundred prophets in the caves? The interesting thing is, though, Elijah says the exact same thing in chapter 18, verse 22. I, even I only, am left the prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. No one wants to call him a fraidy cat in chapter 18. No one wants to say he's having a pity party in chapter 18. Because you see here he's doing the same thing. He's saying, I'm the only open resistance against Baal. I'm the only one left that is out there. And I've shown Israel your power, Lord, and they haven't listened. And what he's doing is he is stating an accusation against Israel for faithlessness. And he does it twice. The first is like a preliminary hearing. God says, why are you here? And it's not, you shouldn't be here, Elijah. It's, I brought you here. I sent my angel. He gave you food. I pointed you in the direction. It's a specific place. It's the Covenant Mountain where Moses was. Why are you here? And Elijah stands up and he says, Because, Lord, judge of all, just one, your people are guilty. They have forsaken you. They have broken your covenant. There is no one left but me who is openly resisting Baal and who stands for your word. And then God does this interesting thing. He sends the wind, and he sends the earthquake, and he sends the fire. And the text says that God is not in any of those things. They're all powerful things. But then what comes is a low whisper, or you may remember 
that wonderful King James translation, a still, small voice. And you may say to yourself, well, that means that God is gentle. Well, yes, because if he came to Elijah in his full force, he would be consumed in the same way that Moses would be. But it also tells us that in the still small voice that has the power of God's word, it is more powerful than any natural disaster. Than the most powerful things of nature. Don't hold a candle to God's word. God brings his word to Elijah. And he shows him that power. And then it says God was with him. And then Elijah repeats the it's not quite an accusation. It's more like a, uh, an actual formal charge laid before a judge. He says, your people have abandoned you. They have torn down your altars. I am the only one that is left. That is why I am here, Lord. I am pressing a case against Israel. You see, Elijah is disturbed. He's disturbed because Israel is ungrateful and there is no truth in Israel. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever been righteously angry because America is ingrateful for all of the blessings God has showered down upon her for centuries? Have you ever been upset because the church doesn't seem to care about truth anymore? doesn't seem to care about whether the Bible is the word of God or whether Jesus is God or whether there's a trinity or whether you must be saved by faith alone. You ever get upset by that? You should. You see, if we look at Elijah as this sort of broken pity party man, we lose his righteous anger as the mouthpiece of God on earth, as the prophet of God saying, your people have broken your law. This is a sad story. But the story doesn't end there. Because you see, the power of God is not only found in his convicting of sin. It's also found in his preserving by grace. That God preserves by grace. Because he makes this other famous statement to us. In verse 18. Yet I will, not have, will Leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. You see, what God has said is, I hear your accusation, Elijah. As a matter of fact, I am going to send down judgment. You're going to anoint a king of Syria, a king of Israel, and a prophet. And they are going to execute judgment. There's judgmental language in here. Notice that it's the sword that will kill or slay some translations. In verse 17, The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. And we're immediately reminded of Romans 13 and the fact that the magistrate bears the sword to exact God's justice. So God has said, I'm going to judge Israel, but in the midst of that judgment, I'm going to preserve 7,000 of my remnant by grace. You see, what God is saying is not, 
don't worry, Elijah, you won't be alone. There'll be some buddies for you. He's saying, I always have my people. And even in the midst of the worst judgment that you can think about, I will preserve my church. And that story is the same story that we see in Habakkuk. It's the same story that we see in the New Testament church. That God preserves his people. In the midst of all of this judgment, he preserves his people. The limitations of God, the power of God seen in this incident with Elijah. And then Elijah leaves and he goes back to do God's commands. And we see then in this short little vignette, just two verses, the call of God. God is taking Elijah, but Elijah will not be alone for very long. Because he goes, and part of what he has been told to do is to anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And he goes down, and he throws his cloak over him. And this is a very odd scene. Imagine that you are Elisha. Now remember, it's only been raining like a month and a half. Okay? There's been drought before then. It's been raining, cats and dogs, for a month and a half. It's rained so hard that now you can finally get back to farming. And you're out in the field farming, and some stranger walks up and throws a cloak over you. You think, what is this? This is very odd. But the interesting thing is, Elisha immediately understands. As soon as Elijah passes and casts his cloak on him, he drops the oxen and he runs after him to talk to him. You see, the call of God is completely upon Elisha's life. The call of God is, first of all, complete. It is complete because Elijah leaves everything behind. He gives no attention to anything else. Now, we may think again in our minds of another familiar Bible scene about the man who our Lord says, come follow me, and he says, well, let me go back. I've just got to say goodbye to my parents. But that's not what's happening here. Because you see, Elisha goes back, and he takes the oxen, and he kills them. And then he burns the yoke. What, no firewood lying around? No. Elisha's saying, I'm completely done with my former life. I can never go back. I'm abandoning it, and I'm following the call of God. If you think about it, he, his following is even more drastic than the disciples who do what? They leave their nets. And then we find out later in the Gospel of John that they actually come back to them and do some fishing. Here, Elisha says, I'm completely done. The call of God is complete upon our lives. But it's not just complete If you know the call of God, you also know that the call of God is costly. Elisha has to give up his family. He has to go give up his mother and father. He has to give up everything that's familiar to him. And he has to give up security. Because it's not exactly a poor man that has 12 oxen to plow a field. He's giving up family, familiarity, and security. He's leaving it all behind because God has called. 
Do you know that kind of call? You don't need to be a servant of a prophet to know that kind of call. Because you see, when God calls you to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, He calls you to leave everything else behind. He may call you to leave your hobbies behind. He may call you to leave your job behind. He may call you to even leave family members behind to follow Him. You see, when God calls, He calls every part of you. You can't say, oh, but let me... No. God wants all of you. The last thing that's interesting to see about this call is that the call of God is not only complete and costly, it is humbling. Imagine this. Elijah takes out a notice in the Jerusalem Times. Need assistant to prophet. Must be willing to follow me around, carry cloak, wash my hands. That's Elisha's job description. In 2 Kings, when we get to it, Elisha is actually described as the one who pours water over Elijah's hands. That's his job. He follows Elijah around and is his servant. It's very humbling. Do you know that kind of call of God? Or are you waiting for the call of God that says, I want the call of God that puts me front and center in front of everybody and lets, and lets people tell me how great I am and how useful I am. There are those sorts of times in our lives. But the real call of God is a humbling call because it's a call to service, to leaving behind importance and wealth, to being a servant. Should that surprise us? Because that's exactly the call that our Lord Jesus followed, isn't it? That of a servant. Well, the story of Elijah and Elisha will go on, but this is one of the most important sections in this history. And it's not because we can really relate to Elijah and his fear. It's because God is opening up, as it were, the window of heaven and showing us his purpose in eternity. That he has a people, that he has a covenant, that he has a law, and that he holds people accountable. And that it's only by grace that any can be saved. That any knees that have not bowed. This is the work of our Lord. This is the story that unfolds for us here in the life of Elijah. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you speak to us in that still, small voice. That we know that you are God because of your word and the power of your word. We ask that you would make that word more real than even the air we breathe to us today, this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.